It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. On December 21st, 1944, a young pretty girl is going to make her way through the streets of Bastogne, Belgium, amidst the horrible bomb blasts and machine gun fire, in an attempt to find a three-story building functioning as a makeshift hospital. She makes it there alive and offers her skills as a nurse to care for the wounded and dying strewn upon the floors. Hey, this is Eric. There is something profound and deeply moving in hearing the stories of those that leave the shelter of comfort behind to carry the love of Jesus into the dangerous places. In the Word of God, missions work is characterized as the highest form of work. If you would like to be trained for such an important work, consider joining us at one of our upcoming discipleship training programs on the Ellerslie campus. Our next program is a one-week training that starts in less than one month on November 7th. We would love to have you join us. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now let's visit Bastogne, Belgium, in the midst of the horrible bomb blasts and machine gun fire, and witness a stirring picture of sacrificial love, reminiscent of our beloved Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Monday edition of Daily Thunder. Uh, This is the only... uh, Daily Thunder message I'm actually giving this week. We have all sorts of uh, special guest uh, Daily Thunders this week, and so for those of you that have been following the uh, <coughs> World War II series, this is the lone installment this week, and it's our final session of 1944. So then we're going to crest into 1945, which is victory year. Uh, but this has been, if you haven't been following it, you've been missing out on a very, very fun journey. Uh, we are in a very, very significant battle called the Battle of the Bulge uh, right now, uh, which I will explain in, in a brief way. But uh, this one is called the White Parachute, and it's an unusual take uh, on the, the war. I guess they all sort of are. But uh, this one is uh, unique and rather special to me. So we're in a place called Bastogne. It's in Belgium. And it's a very critical spot in World War II for an American. Uh, There are two key locations in the war that I think stand out almost more than any other. And that is going to be Omaha Beach on uh, on D-Day, June 6th, 1944. And this is going to be December 20th through December 27th of 1944. And it's a place called Bastogne. And it's called the Siege of Bastogne. And most of us, uh, we, we may not be familiar with it if you, if you haven't spent a lot of time with World War II, but as Americans, these are two of the key moments that define us. Uh, they're, they're uniquely American in their nature, because there's all sorts of other battles with other uh, nations involved where there's great heroics, but these are two that stand out to the Americans because Omaha Beach was all American. That's a good way of describing it. It was all American, and uh, so is a Bastogne, and it's going to be known as for the 101st Airborne Division, which is going to be encircled in the town of Bastogne. They are told they have to keep it, and the Germans have surrounded them. It's a desperate hour, a desperate situation. If you go back to uh, my last sessions, you'd get a little more background on that, but the reason it's such a significant location, it's the critical town of Seven Roads, so it's in this wooded area called the Ardennes. Uh, which is in northern France, southern Belgium, and just on the edge of Luxembourg. And so it's this, uh, this wooded, beautiful wooded area. And in the middle of it is this town called Bastogne. It's on a high plateau, about 1,400 feet high. And it's this arterial where all these key roads 
that go through this wooded region, which is rather large, uh, all go through this town. And so Hitler wants that town. And the Allies say, don't lose that town. And so it becomes a very uh, critical uh, part of the war. So that's the Ardennes region. You can see it. Uh, that's France. And this is at a very specific time in World War II where there was still a, a Vichy area, and that's, going to, that, that's a diff- for a different time. But uh, Great Britain is up to the uh, upper left, but that region is the forested region that the Battle of the Bulge is going to take place in. And up to this point, this is, uh, the yellow star is going to be the beaches of Normandy, and so that's D-Day. It's a critical moment uh, in, uh, war, in the war's history. And then the, uh, the green star is what's called the Felez Pocket. So if you'd been following uh, this series, you'd know the significance of these different uh, moments. Uh, the blue star would be Paris, France, and the, the retaking, the liberation of Paris. And then they're going to swing up and take a very critical port city so that they can supply their troops because they're actually supplying their troops all the way up to Germany, up there through the beaches of Normandy. They're actually, that's their supply line. And it's like hundreds of miles a day on rough European roads, and they need 20,000 tons of materials every day. But they're getting bogged down, and, and the weather's terrible. And so it's, they need to get a better port city. So they have to get Antwerp, Belgium up there. So Hitler is going to try and take back Antwerp. That's the the red star. And so he's going to swing in through this forest region to try and break the line of the Americans and reclaim Antwerp. Okay. So that gives you a background on, you suddenly became experts on World War II right there. And so you see that star inside of the square, that's Bastogne. So Bastogne is right smack in the middle of all the excitement. So the Battle of the Bulge is that red side is all the, the Nazi movement, Hitler, and then the, uh, the bluish side is going to be the Great Britain and the United States, and you're going to see that, that part that sort of bulges in, uh, the red coming into the blue section uh, down below, and right in the middle you're going to see a blue circle with an American flag on it. That's Bastogne, just to give you sort of the idea of them being surrounded. No one in their right mind really wants to be in Bastogne, Belgium, uh, in this hour between December 20th and December 27th. So the command from above says, you must hold the stone. So it is a critical uh, hour. They cannot lose it. And so these are the dates, December 20th through the 27th, 1944. So we have some different characters in this battle. In the last message, which I was called Unbreakable Bastone, really fun message. If you want to learn about the 101st Airborne Division and what they did, that's that message, okay? This is not that message. This is going to be a message more about the medics uh, in this uh, war and in this particular siege. And I don't know why it has such a fascination to me, but I've, been, I've spent a, a good deal of time actually studying what took place in this uh, battle. And there's these two characters just stand out to me, mainly for the reason most people in World War II didn't talk about what they went through. And so it's, it's like you have to excavate to get the data of what took place. And in this, we have a man named Dr. Jack T. Pryor, who at the time was a captain, and he was 27 years old, is going to, about 28 years later, write down his account. And it's going to include in his uh, memoirs of this a girl named Renee Lemaire. And so as a result, we have these two characters that are going to stand out in history and that we can at least know and put some personality to. And that's what we're going to do today. I'm just going to walk you through this uh, sort of the way I've encountered it. 
and I think you'll, you'll be equally uh, moved by it. So here's our guy, uh, Captain Jack T. Pryor, MC. I'm guessing that means something like medical command. I know he's, he's a medic, but I'm not sure what MC stands for. He was 27 years old uh, at the time. And uh, there is a picture of him with uh, the sign of Bastogne. Uh, then we have another character named uh, Renee Lemaire. I, I could be mispronouncing her French name. Uh, her name is actually a lot longer than that, but we'll trim it down to that. She was a nurse. She's 30 years old at the time, and she's engaged. She, she's engaged to a Jewish man who was arrested uh, by the uh, Nazis when they took Belgium and was taken uh, captive uh, by them. And so she has just arrived uh, like a couple days before in Bastogne, which is the place no one really wants to be, but she has come in around, right around the 16th of December, right before the Battle of the Bulge broke out, and she was coming home for Christmas. Her family, her parents lived in Bastogne, so she is going to be in Bastogne. Uh, the, the city, the town is going to be encircled on the 19th going into the 20th of December, and she's going to be stuck there, okay? So that gives you a little background on, the, on her. So uh, we have this unique tale. 28 years later, afterwards, Jack Pryor is going to write down his memoirs of this, uh, this situation in Bastogne. And so he wrote it. Uh, it's called The Night Before Christmas. It's something that he used to always share with his kids every Christmas. And his, his kids never could figure out why, Christmas would be so beautiful and so fun, and then he would always bring up the Battle of the Bulge, and he would always talk about that every Christmas it was a tradition, and his kids just sort of put up with it, because they didn't really enjoy hearing about all these dead people, and it was like such a cheery time, Christmas, and then he would bring up this story, and it's not until years later that they actually are going to visit uh, the area and meet some of the people involved, that they're going to understand their father and what had happened to him, and the significant uh, issues that in the significant role he played even. And so uh, this, is, this is excerpted. I'm going to greatly shorten this down, but this is excerpted from his memoirs. When my oldest son was a youngster, he periodically posed the question, dad, what's the most exciting thing that ever happened to you? It was a question I never remember asking my dad, and I wonder today what his answer would have been. My answer to my son, John, was always the same, recounting episodes of the Battle of the Bulge with particular emphasis on Bastogne since I was in residence there from December 20th, 1944 until January 17th, 1945. Bastogne on this date, December 19th, 1944, I've skipped actually forward in the story quite a bit, was an, in, was an intact but somewhat deserted city. The sight of the residents dragging their belongings with them on little carts leaving as we entered was recognized as a bad omen, rats leaving the sinking ship. Many of these people faced the difficult decision of whether to retain the American flag over their door or to put the swastika back up. My aid station was initially in a garage on one of the main streets. So just the dynamic that you, we, we covered this last time, that here you are a resident of Belgium and the Nazis have previously occupied. And so to show good favor to the Nazis, you stick a swastika up to say, hey, we're, we're okay with you being here. And then the Americans come in. So you take down the swastika, stick up uh, an American flag over your door to say, hey, you know, no, we're, we're, we have peace with you. Well, now they're being encircled. Uh, so what do you do? Do you take down the American flag, even though the Americans still occupy it, and say, no, no, Nazis, we're with you if you come into the town. This is an interesting thing. If you're tossed to and fro like a wave of the sea like that in your Christian life, you're not going to do so well. 
you sort of need to know who you stand for and stand. Two days later, I had to move into a larger area in a private three-story home as the casualties increased and because I could not heat the garage adequately. The weather was very cold and there was about a foot of snow on the ground. My diary indicates we worked 24 hours a day in the aid station, that the plasma froze and would not run, and that we had no medical supplies and that the town was continually shelled. We in Bastogne never had any idea of the importance of this battle, thinking it was just another town. Its importance did not dawn upon us until one day we hooked up a radio to a vehicular battery and heard the BBC in London paying tribute to the gallant defenders of Bastogne. They compared this battle to Waterloo, Gettysburg, and Verdun. The news that we were surrounded also had a curious effect upon our men. Such remarks were heard as, they've got us surrounded, the poor wretches, or surrounded, good, now we can attack on all sides. I can never remember considering that we were going to lose that fight or that help would not eventually arrive. Living in a city without electricity, water, food, and medical supplies was a challenge. Could you imagine? I just decided to stick that quote up there because I thought it was a little bit of an understatement. <laughs> civilian physicians were always scarce in towns we took. I never remember seeing a civilian physician in all of Germany. The only explanation for this I can offer was that many physicians were members of the Nazi party and that they took to the road before we arrived. Jewish, Jewish physicians had either left the country or were in concentration camps. This, of course, had serious implications in that the civilian population descended upon our aid station as soon as the Red Cross flag was hoisted. I even did a delivery. So we're going to have the bold entry of Renee Lemaire into our story. Remember, she's home for Christmas. Suddenly her town is surrounded. They're in these dismal conditions. And most, if not everyone in Bastogne that is still there is hiding. They just want to survive this. They don't want to be noticed. And because, I mean, bombs or, I mean, shells are landing on the city. There's machine gun fire everywhere. You don't go anywhere. This girl is going to head out because she wants to find the nearest aid station and to serve because she's a nurse. And so she is going to, on her Christmas break, as she's just gotten home, she sees the circumstances and she knows that there's a lot of hurting men. And so she is going to go and basically say, please let me help. So the memoirs of Jack Pryor continue. Now in regard to the care of the wounded in Bastogne, I have always believed and still do that this was, did not constitute a bright page in the, America, in the history of the Army Medical Department. I operated the only aid station for the Armored Division Combat Command, although there were at least three other battalion surgeons with the armor. I, I was holding over 100 patients, of whom about 30 were very seriously injured litter patients, which means they had to be carried in. They couldn't even make it in there. So they have serious injuries, whether that's you know, head trauma, whether that's uh, you know, they're opened up somehow, and they have no surgical tools, nothing. So they carry these people in, and they're just laying there. They had no way of helping them. And so it's an extreme situation. And this is, he had about 100. He is going to, at a different point, which I, which I cut out because it's just too long of a story, make it across, risking his life to get to another aid station. And they have like 600 laying there. And again, no surgeons. They have no, no way of helping these people. So they're just trying to comfort them. And could you imagine having 100? If you're just by yourself and there's like a crowd bigger than this just laying there and crying, moaning, I mean, you just can't even imagine. That's what Renee is going to come into. 
So he's like all by himself, and this girl's going to show up and say, I want to help. The patients who had head, chest, and abdominal wounds could only face certain slow deaths since there was no chance of surgical procedures. We had no surgical talent among us, and there was not so much as a can of ether or a scalpel to be had in the city. So these are memories of Renee. That's just what I'm calling it. Renee shrank away from the fresh, gory trauma. You know, the one, one of the things I like about this story is that in many ways I can identify with Renee. I want to be helpful. And we live in a world that is very similar to Bastone in this situation, where to head out into it, you're risking your life. To actually go and do what you know you need to do. I mean, because most of us are like, hey, I'm home for Christmas break. Now, this isn't much of a Christmas break, you have to admit, when your town is surrounded by Nazis. Uh, and there's you know, shelling outside, machine gun fire constantly. That isn't much of a Christmas break. But hey, this is my Christmas break. To take your Christmas break and spend it is something that is deeply Christ-like uh, in this story. There is something that is very powerful to me, but it's also a symbol, you know, like of our culture. There are so many that are dead, there's only one solution for them, and that's Jesus. And so, and you are, happen to have the knowledge to be able to help in a situation like this. But what I like about this is the fact that it does acknowledge that she shrank away from the fresh, gory trauma. She couldn't handle all the blood. Here she is, a nurse. It was very intimidating for her when she saw these people opened up. And so she would sort of avoid that. It's like, could you deal with that? She still wanted to do her best and help out in any way. But that's sort of like us, don't you think? It's like, God, I feel very unskilled for this. I mean, I know I should be better at this, but wow, this is hard. She preferred to circulate among the litter patients, sponging, feeding them, and distributing the few medications we had, sulfur pills and plasma. The presence of Renee was a, moral fact, a morale factor of the highest order. In other words, all these, in, in history, she is going to go down. She's actually going to be nicknamed the Angel of Bastone. And the impact that she had upon these soldiers, she couldn't do much. She couldn't do surgery, but she could comfort. She could speak words of life and encouragement. And just the, the soft touch uh, in that moment to wipe someone's brow, to do something, to be present when all these people feel so alone uh, in this hostile situation. So more memories of Renee. I can recall Renee leaving her duties and rushing into the backyard to get a white parachute. She wanted the silk for a wedding dress. She invariably was beaten out by a soldier and always returned empty-handed. So there's this one thing that she's after. She, she's wanting to get married to this Jewish man that she's engaged to, and these parachutes that after, uh, oh, it was somewhere around the 24th or 25th, right around, uh, I think it was 23rd or 24th of December, the sky's clear enough that the Allied planes can come over and drop some, uh, some packages in, and they would come in with these parachutes, these silk parachutes, I guess. And they were all different colors, but every once in a while they'd see a white one come down, and then she would ask if she could run out there risking her life to go outside so that she could gather in a white parachute because she wanted to make it into a wedding dress. But she never got one, by the way. That's a key part of the story. At 8.30 p.m. Christmas Eve, I was in a building next to my hospital preparing to go next door and write a letter for a young lieutenant to his wife. 
The lieutenant was dying of a chest wound. As I was about to step out the door for the hospital, one of my men asked if I knew what day it was, pointing out that on Christmas Eve we should open a champagne bottle. As the two of us filled our cups, the room, which was well blackened out, became as bright as an arc welder's torch. Within a second or two, we heard the screeching sound of the first bomb we had ever heard. Every bomb as it descends seems to be pointed right at you. We hit the floor as a terrible explosion next door rocked our building. I ran outside to discover that the three-story apartment serving as my hospital was a flaming pile of debris about six feet high. Memories of Rene. Lemaire, speaking of Rene, managed to evacuate six soldiers from the burning building, but died while attempting to save a seventh wounded. Some men volunteered to be lowered into the smoking cellar on a rope, and two or three injured were pulled out before the entire building fell into the cellar. I estimated that about 20 injured were killed in this bombing, along with Rene Lemaire. It's interesting because so many people are going to die in World War II, and they're nameless to us, which is why you see any type of war memorial to put names up. It's like you need to remember that these were individuals, that they were oftentimes young and there's something very moving when you can actually get into the story and start caring about someone. And to recognize that this young girl is going to make a deliberate decision to go into difficulty, to head into danger, and then even after she has entered into danger, continue to enter into danger, to start removing these men from this debris, only to have that debris collapse upon her. Before our unit left Bastogne, we dissected the hospital rubble and identified the majority of the bodies, including Rene Lemaire. I brought her remains to her parent, parents encased in the white parachute she so dearly wanted. And, you know, I've thought about that actually quite a bit, you know, that here she's after this silk parachute so that she could be clothed in it for her wedding. Instead, she's clothed in it for her burial. And... It caused me to think of the, the statement from Paul the Apostle, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's like, however I'm going to wear this white parachute, I'm going to wear it, either for an earthly wedding and my most wonderful memories I could have on this earth, or for my heavenly marriage, the most wonderful memories I could have for all eternity. It's like, either way it goes, I'm going to be clothed in a white parachute. So he's going to write a a letter of commendation uh, about Rene Lemaire. We actually have this letter of commendation. Uh, this is J J January 1st, 1945. Uh, the subject, commendation for Rene Bernadette Emily Lemaire, deceased to the commanding general of the 10th Armored Division. As Italian battle surgeon, 20th Armored Infantry Battalion, I am recommending a commendation for Rene Lemaire on the following evidence. This girl, a registered nurse in the country of Belgium, volunteered her services at the aid station 20, 20th Armored Infantry Battalion in Bastogne, Belgium, 21st of December, 1944. At this time, the station was holding about 150 patients since the city was encircled by enemy forces and evacuation was impossible. Many of these patients were seriously injured and in great need of immediate nursing attention. This girl cheerfully accepted the Herculean task and worked without adequate rest or food until the night of her untimely death on 24 December 1944. 
She changed dressings, fed patients, and able to feed themselves, gave out medications, bathed, and made the patients more comfortable, and was of great assistance in the administration of plasma and other professional duties. Her very presence among those wounded men seemed to be an inspiration to those whose morale had declined from prolonged suffering. On the night of December 24, the building in which Renee Lemaire was working was scored with a direct hit by an enemy bomber. She, together with those whom she was caring for so diligently, were killed. It is on these grounds that I recommend the highest award possible to one who, though not a member of the armed forces of the United States, was of invaluable assistance to us. Jack T. Pryor, commanding, or Captain, MC Commanding. So this is uh, continuing on with Jack's, Jack Pryor's uh, memoirs. Lieutenant Colonel Abrams, now General Abrams, and awaiting confirmation as Army Chief of Staff, opened the road on December 26, and elements of the 4th Armored Division poured into Bastogne. I spent the next few days assisting Major Sorrell in surgery, and on December 27th, the glider surgical team arrived. This was a highly organized unit, and they worked as teams on the abdomen, chest, etc. It was their role to prepare as many casualties as possible for evacuation to the rear. The Germans continued to shell the town day and night, and the bombers continued their activities several times a night until January 2nd. It was not until January 17th that Team DeSobery, that's his medical team, left the stone. The most spectacular battle of World War II was over. More than 56,000 Americans were killed in this winter blitz. The Germans had thrown 500,000 cracked troops and 1,000 tanks into their last stand. They used 800 Luftwaffe planes in the Ardennes battle. They now reluctantly withdrew, battered and bleeding, and the wound of that fight never healed. The Germans are going to spend all of their best energies, and they're going to end up never getting those energies back, and they're going to end up losing the war because of what they spent in the Ardennes, and in big part because of what's going to happen in Bastogne. The Father's Business. Jesus uh, is going to make a unique statement uh, back in the beginning when he's young and he's going to be uh, lost. Remember, his parents can't find him. And it says, and he, Jesus, said to his parents, why, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? What a strange statement. John twenty twenty one, As the father has sent me, I also send you. So did you not know that Jesus needs to be about his father's business? Do you not know that you are supposed to be about his father's business too? He, you were sent the same way he was sent. The same way he was willing to risk everything and go forward to do that which must be done, so are you. The blessing of inconvenience. The word inconvenience is a negative word in the dictionary. If you look it up, it's going to have negative connotation to it, and yet in the Christian world, it is not a negative concept. I know that might sound strange, but it's actually a blessing. The blessing of inconvenience. You look at everything that actually matters in the kingdom of heaven, you're going to recognize that it's an inconvenience. And so I know we could start a, a long list uh, of talking about, well, you know, if I were to help them, that would be an inconvenience. And there, God's heart is over here. He cares about these people. Well, if I'm going to do something about it, it's going to inconvenience my life. Welcome to Christianity. Christianity is one massive inconvenience, if you want to look at it that way. If you want to serve Jesus Christ, you have to be willing to accept the fact that you need to give up your way of doing things. Your Christmas break needs to be handed over to him. And, I mean, you could just see the course of Renee Lemaire's life, and you're going to recognize not only does she give up her Christmas break, she gives up her life 
Well, excuse me, but I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm too young. I'm only 30, she could say. What is it about a story like Renee Lemaire that we say, now that's the way to live? What she did is the right way of living. Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So this is the pattern. We know this. This is the Jesus pattern. The inconvenience is a part of the package. That as we make ourselves available to Jesus Christ, it actually is going to stretch us, stretch our comforts. But as we do it under the least of these, we are serving Jesus Christ. One of my favorite stories told by Richard Wormbrandt is a story of two Chinese Christians in a hovel-like prison cell, frigid cold, and they're both given a thin blanket over their shoulders. That's all they have is a thin blanket, and they're in chains. And one of them has a thought. By the way, the reason they're there is because they were preaching Jesus, and they were serving Jesus. So both of them are Christian uh, young men. And one of them has a thought. If that were Jesus sitting next to me, would I give him my blanket? Now, I just want you to put yourself in that position. Even if that was Jesus sitting next to you, he has his own blanket. (laughs) I don't care if it's Jesus sitting next to me. This is how the young man reasoned. If that were Jesus sitting next to me, it would be my privilege to share the little protection I have from the cold with him. And he took off his blanket and put it on the shoulders of his brother. Now, I, I don't know if you're as flabbergasted over that story as I am, because there's something supernatural in it. But it's something that I think all of us are strangely attracted to. It's like, God, make, make me like that. I want to think that way. I want to behave as Rene Lemaire and not as me. <laughs> I want that something greater to work in me, that embracing of difficulty and challenge. Becoming an emergency rescue shelter. So in 9, not 9-11, uh, 1999, Y2K was the name of it. We have all our little terms that happen over time. In, uh, in Y2K, I, some of you may not have been born yet, which is a funny statement, but uh, Y2K was such a weird uh, little stretch of time. We were going to have the changeover of date on all of our computer systems from 1999 to 00. And, I mean, there was, I mean, talk about conspiracy theories. We had every thought, and the world could blow up. And no one knew. I mean, no one knew. Any more than we know what's going to happen November 3rd, 2020, no one really knew what was going to happen when the date changed. I mean, it was a big New Year's uh, that year. But it's in the dead of winter. And so here in America, especially in a colder climate like we could have on December 31st into January 1st, you don't know. And so I remember I made this statement because uh, I had thought I'd heard that uh, Focus on the Family had made their building a emergency rescue shelter. And they were going to have uh, anyone from Colorado Springs that was in need could come there. If their power went out, they were going to have generators and they would take care and keep you warm and they would have food. And I remember being so blessed by that. I was like, now that's how a Christian behaves, right there. So I went on the broadcast, the Focus broadcast, and I was talking about, you know, I just want to say thank you guys for doing that during Y2K. And they had this really awkward look back at me, and later they had to correct it on the, you know, on the program. It's like, that actually, we really like the idea that Eric brought up, but we didn't do it. <laughs> oh, it was horrible. Uh, but... That thought has been in my head. See, there's, 
Where the cold are warmed, the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, the weak are made strong. Listen to this statement from Isaiah. Isaiah 32.2, a man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Becoming a hiding place from the wind. It's interesting, but listen to this. Doing the work of the man. Who is that man that is going to become a hiding place from the wind? It's Jesus. And then who is it that is going to express that hiding place to this world around us? It's the church. We are a hiding place from the wind. So let's look at this scripture again, and I just want you to not just think about the grandness of Jesus and what he has done for us, but to recognize that we are commissioned to do something similar with our lives. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. So Christianity is, I just have four things, and we could say a lot more than this, but these are four things that Christianity is. It is, it is embracing the inconvenient. It is standing up for what is right even when everyone else remains seated. It is being made strong to be poured out and it is doing that which the Father is doing. You know, so for all of us, just to have that reset point in our life, we have a tendency, especially in this culture, to think about ourselves. To think about our own collection of water in our basement, our own baked beans that we have just in case a crisis comes instead of actually thinking you know what I would like to get some baked beans some canned baked beans for everyone around me in other words where we think about others and their needs as opposed to how we can self-preserve no how can we give how can we bless how can we make others strong and so in the midst of this there is a great war going on in this story and there's this picture of beauty of purity in the midst of it. And that's why I think it so moved the, the soldiers at this time too, that this angel of the stone would be present in the midst of such a horrifying circumstance known as the siege of the stone. So many men are gonna die in this. And yet in the midst of it, you see a girl who had no business risking her life, who is going to give her life to bring comfort to others and in so doing, lay down her life. Father, I ask that you would refresh in our souls that yearning and that desire to be a picture of your rescuing hand. Lord, you are a medic in the midst of this battle. You are a life giver. You are one who comes to comfort us in our darkest hour. Lord, we want to be like that. We want to be about our Father's business. Please train our souls for this. We love you and we trust you, Lord. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.